Our scripture reading this morning is Galatians 4, 21 through 5, 1, and can be found in the Pew Bible on page 974. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm thinking over and over of the lyric we sang just a few minutes before. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That's where I am. I know that it doesn't matter how much I prepared this sermon or how eloquently I might or might not deliver it. If your spirit doesn't attend this preaching of the word, I and these hearers will be helpless. And so we look to you for grace. We pray that you might attend the preaching of the word of Christ with the spirit of Christ, God the Holy Spirit, so that you would use this sermon to continue the good work you've begun in us who've believed to make us like your son in his image. And so that you might awaken dead sinners, you might resurrect them from the dead, give them saving faith in Christ even today. Please do it. Please do it and glorify yourself by it and do good for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible records for us a number of instances of people taking matters into their own hands with disastrous consequences. One such story is found in 1 Samuel 13. There the Israelites are facing the Philistines and the Philistines are many in number like the sand on the seashore in multitude, 1 Samuel 13 says. And the first king of Israel, King Saul, sees that his Israelite army is trembling and deserting. The priest Samuel had told Saul to wait for seven days and then Samuel would come 
and offer sacrifices to the Lord, burnt offerings and peace offerings. But 1 Samuel 13 says, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul's excuse is easy, I think, for us to understand. When Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul knew that he wanted to have the Lord's favor in Israel's battle with this dreaded foe. Saul saw that Israel was losing heart in the face of their Philistine opponents, and Saul knew that Samuel had said he'd be there in seven days to make the offerings to the Lord and to tell Saul what the Lord's will was, but seven days had passed, no Samuel, so Saul took matters into his own hands. But just because you can understand Saul's actions, it doesn't make them right and good. Samuel gives us a divine interpretation of what Saul did. Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul tried to speed along the Lord's process. Saul wasn't content with the Lord's timing, so he took matters into his own hands and it cost him not only his own rule over Israel, but no longer was it going to be Saul's line from which the Lord would cause Israel's eternal king to come, but the line of another, the line of David. Now, I tell you that story because we see something similar in our text today from Genesis chapter 16. The Lord has made a promise to a man named Abram. That promise involves Abram's wife, Sarai. But the Lord hasn't executed on his promise according to Abram and Sarai's timetable. So they take matters into their own hands with monumental consequences. I wonder if you realize that you face Saul's temptation and Abram and Sarai's temptation. All of us are tempted to try and circumvent the Lord's good plan according to his good timing to bring about something that we want or think we deserve or even something we know that God has promised to his people in his word. So how is it that we should think and act when we're tempted like Saul and Abram and Sarai to take matters into our own hands and not wait on the Lord? Well, let's find the answer to that question from the word together. 
So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. That's the first book in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please use one of the Bibles that we have in the pew rack or in the seats here in the fellowship hall. And again, if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that Bible as our gift to you. Genesis chapter 16. Now let me just give you a little bit of run up to what's going on. Back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promises a man named Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then the Lord reiterates that promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 13. And as we saw last week, Genesis chapter 15, the Lord promises over and over again to an old childless man married to an old barren woman. He promises you are going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 says, Abram believed the Lord's promises. And the Lord credited it to Abram as righteousness. But by the time Genesis 16 opens, yet more time has passed since the Lord first made those promises to Abram. And those promises haven't begun to come to pass as far as Abram can see. In fact, Moses tells us very plainly here in chapter 16 and verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And so as we continue through the book of Genesis in this sermon series and we continue looking for the seed of the woman promised by the Lord in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the devilish serpent's head, we're perplexed by what we're seeing. Because multiple times now already, Abram has been promised by the Lord offspring. God has promised Abram seed. And not just one child. God is promising nations. He's promising descendants like the dust of the earth, like the stars in the sky. And Abram's on record believing that promise and what that promise ultimately means for his salvation. And God has reckoned to Abraham righteousness on account of Abram's believing the Lord. So it seems to us that the stage is set for the promised child, the promised seed. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. And with all that in mind, the rest of Genesis 16:1 reads a little ominously, doesn't, doesn't it? She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Abram's wife Sarai has a slave, a native of Egypt named Hagar. And you put those two sentences together and you're like, Uh Uh-oh, I think I know where this is going. And yep, Moses sets you up to make you think it's going exactly where it's going to go. So let's read Genesis 16, verses 1 through 6 together. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong, be, or may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So in verse 1, we're introduced to the tension in the narrative. Sarai, the wife of the man promised innumerable children, remains barren, but now there's another woman, this Egyptian slave, Hagar. I formatted the sermon outline in your bulletin in the unusual way that you find it, because I want you to see the brilliance with which Moses, writing this narrative under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, tells this story. I formatted it so that you can begin to see the marvelous parallels and structural devices that Moses employs to hold this story together in a captivating way. But after we see the background for the story in verse 1, we see beginning in verse 2, Sarai hatch a plot to give the Lord a little help in bringing to pass the promises that he's made to Abram. Sarai says, look it, the Lord isn't letting me have any children. And Sarai's right about that. She says what's true in verse 2. Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord is sovereign over every womb. But what Sarai does with that right information is exceedingly foolish. She tells Abram, go. Go into my servant. Go be physically intimate with my servant. And maybe I can have a child by her. Now, this was an accepted practice in the ancient Near East. A woman who was not able to have children on her own could use a female slave as her surrogate and then treat that female slave's baby as her own. But as we're going to see, Moses lets us know this plan was not okay with the Lord. But at the end of verse 2, we see that it was apparently okay with Abram. Because the end of verse 2 says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that construction sound familiar to you? And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai? It should sound familiar. It should sound like what the Lord rebukes Adam for in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord's curse on Adam, and by extension all humanity, begins like this. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Adam listened to his wife to do an evil thing, and Abram listens to the voice of Sarai to do what is shown to be an evil thing. Is the takeaway here, men don't listen to your wives? No. No. Of course not. Godly wives give godly counsel many times. 
But Adam shouldn't have listened to Eve when she handed, them the, handed him the forbidden fruit to eat in the Garden of Eden. And Abram shouldn't have listened to Sarai when she said that Abram should impregnate Hagar and thus have the child that the Lord was promising but hadn't delivered on. And you shouldn't listen when someone gives you ungodly counsel either. But Abram did listen to his wife's foolish counsel. And in verse 3, Moses gives us a time marker that might help explain why Sarai was so anxious. Do you see what verse 3 says? This is after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. That tells us it's been 10 years since Abram and Sarai had begun to live in Canaan. And you'll remember from Genesis chapter 12 that it was in the context of the Lord's command to Abram to set out for Canaan that the Lord first promises Abram that he's going to be the father of a great multitude. And so it's been at least 10 years since the Lord's first promise of seed to Abram. And Sarai's like, a decade's long enough. I'm not getting any younger. It's time to take matters into my own hands. So Moses writes in verse 3 that Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. Now that construction, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, is also meant by Moses to hearken back to Genesis chapter 3 and that first sin from humans that resulted in the curse on all humanity. Do you remember what Moses writes in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, de was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to Abram. All of these very purposeful parallels between Genesis 16 and Genesis 3 are designed to tell you that what's going on in this story is sinful. It's contrary to God's good purpose and desire. But Abram executes on his wife's plan. He is physically intimate with Hagar and she conceives a child. And Hagar, she's become pregnant when her mistress, her female master, is barren Hagar, the Bible says in verse 4, looks with contempt on Sarai. She looks with contempt on Sarai. And here's the first hint that Abram and Sarai's little DIY project here isn't going to go very smoothly. See, the plan was for Hagar to bear a child that would be treated as the fruit of Abram and Sarai's marriage. But now Hagar has a child and Sarai doesn't and can't. And because of the shamefulness of barrenness in the ancient Near East, it appears that Hagar is kind of rubbing it in Sarai's face. And so in verse 5, Sarai, who hatched this whole cockamamie scheme back in verse 2, throws it in Abram's face. May the wrong done to me be on you, she says. And with that blame shifting, where do we find ourselves once again but back in Eden? Do you remember after Adam and Eve sinned what happened? How Adam and Eve talked to God after they had sinned against God? Adam says to God, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And when God asks Eve, what is this that you've done? She says to God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve is casting blame on the serpent for her sin. Adam is casting blame on Eve and God. 
who gave Eve to Adam. And we see the blame game continue here in Genesis 16. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. But when Hagar becomes pregnant, now Sarah says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. And Sarai even says at the end of verse 5, in essence, may the Lord get you for this. May the Lord judge between you and me. He knows you're in the wrong, Abram. But Abram doesn't seek here to guide his wife or even to correct her. He's as passive here in verse 6 as he was in verse 2. He's as passive here as Adam was during the serpent's temptation of Eve in the garden. And he says to Sarai, all right, Hagar's despised you. You're mad at me. So do with Hagar whatever you like. What a bad episode for Abram. He knows now that Hagar is carrying his child. And he doesn't try to keep Hagar around so that their child can be cared for, so that Hagar can be cared for while the child develops in her womb. Abram says to Sarai, do to her as you please. And so at the end of verse 6, we see that that's exactly what's done. And what Sarai is pleased to do is to send away the slave woman who had acted contemptuously towards Sarai. Hagar had been unkind towards Sarai, and Sarai deals harshly, verse 6 says, with Hagar. So harshly that Hagar flees from Sarai. Now before we move on from here, let me just address what I hope is a tension that you're feeling. What are we supposed to do with Abram and Sarai here? Didn't we just hear last week from right here, Genesis 15, 6? Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness? Doesn't the Apostle Paul say of Abram in Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul says of Abram in Romans chapter 4. So what are we supposed to do with this face plant? Well, the first thing we're supposed to do is to believe that it happened just as Moses records for us. And we're also to believe that Moses is telling the truth in Genesis 15, 6, when Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we're supposed to believe Paul when he says in Romans 4 that Abram didn't waver in his faith. And we're supposed to believe the writer of Hebrews when he says in Hebrews 11 that Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, both lived by faith. Now, what do you do with all this? You conclude that saving faith is not perfect faith. Saving faith doesn't mean never faltering faith. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. What makes saving faith saving faith? is not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Saving faith is a gracious gift from God that results in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone, not in your works to any degree that causes you to have right standing before God. And so in a strange way, Genesis 16 is an encouragement to me and hopefully to you, dear Christian, because who among us would be foolish enough to say really to lie and say that we have perfect faith. No. 
Our faith, even our genuine faith, brothers and sisters, falters at times. Lucky for us, we just don't have the misfortune of having it recorded in the Bible. (laughs) How often do you resonate with the pitiful father of the demons-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9? How often is your prayer, I believe, help my unbelief? When Abram's life is taken as a whole, the apostle is right in Romans 4 to say of Abram, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And I have good news for you, brother and sister. When your life is over, that's going to be able to be said of you too. Because God causes that to be able to be said of all of his children at the last day. Because all of your faith... All of your believing, it's all a gracious gift from God purchased for us by the death and resurrection of his dear son. Let's pick up the story Moses is telling at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So beginning at verse 7, the story moves from focusing on Abram and Sarai to focusing on Hagar and the angel of the Lord. Who is this one who's identified in verse 7 as the angel of the Lord? This is the first instance of that phrase in the Bible. You'll find it, I think, 50 times altogether in the Old Testament. Some have said that the angel of the Lord is some kind of pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, what's called a Christophany. Regardless, what's clear is that this angel of the Lord is somehow a visitation from God. That's going to be obvious as we go on. And verse 7 tells us that the angel of the Lord finds Hagar at a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Now, if that place name doesn't mean anything to you, that just means that Hagar's headed back to Egypt. She's headed back to her homeland. And the angel in verse 8 reveals that he has knowledge about Hagar that she hasn't divulged. He knows her name. He knows her position as Sarai's slave. He knows that she's pregnant. And that indicates this angel's supernatural knowledge. And he asks Hagar where she's coming from and where she's going. Not because the angel doesn't know. You'll remember that God asked Abram, or Adam rather in Genesis 3, where are you? This question from the angel is intended to draw Hagar out. And she replies by saying she's fleeing from Sarai. 
She's fleeing from her mistress. In verse 9, the angel commands Hagar, you need to return to Sarai. You need to return, Hagar, to the woman who treated you harshly, and you need to submit to Sarai. You need to understand that for Hagar to be a part of Abram's camp, for her to return and to be under Abram's protection is to be assured of provision for her and for her son and for their protection. Remember, back in Genesis 12, God has promised to bless Abram. The covenant ceremony in Genesis 15 shows that God is going to surely keep that promise. And we see that from Abram's ever-increasing possessions, his military victory. That's all evidence that the Lord is blessing Abram. And so it will be good for Hagar to go back. And then the angel makes a promise to Hagar in verse 10 that in my mind, cinches that this angel is divine. Some kind of visitation from God. The angel promises, I will... Surely, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He's going to surely cause Hagar to have offspring or seed that can't be numbered. Their multitude will be so great. That's the same kind of promise, isn't it, that we've been seeing the Lord make and reiterate to Abram since chapter 12. This angel is making promises that only the Lord makes. And the angel's speech to Hagar continues in verses 11 and 12 where he prophesies that Hagar is going to bear a son named Ishmael. That name Ishmael comes from the Hebrew that means God hears. And Hagar's boy's name means that the Lord has heard Hagar as she has cried out and bemoaned her pitiful state. Ishmael, the angel goes on to say, is going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to be untamed. He's going to be strong. He's going to be an adversary to all, and all are going to oppose him. Most pointedly, look at the end of verse 12. Ishmael's going to have an antagonistic relationship with the rest of those who descend from Abram. Ishmael, the angel says, shall dwell over against his kinsmen. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it says in verse 12, he will live to the east of all his brothers. But the meaning is that he's going to oppose his brothers. He's going to oppose his kinsmen. And that's going to come to pass in Genesis and in later parts of the Bible, as we'll see. But despite the angel's hard prophecy, Hagar has born a son. And that son is going to be the beginning of a numberless multitude. God is going to bless and cause to be fruitful and to multiply those who come from Abram as he promised, even when their birth is the result of a sinful lapse in faith. And so Hagar acknowledges that she's been visited by God. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. And she confesses that she's seen the God who looks after her to protect her. And so, verse 14, the well that we saw mentioned back in verse 7 gets a name. It's an appropriate name as it turns out, Bir Lahai Roy, which means in Hebrew, the well of the living one who sees me. And with that, the scene that was played out in verses 7 through 14 comes full circle and ends. And then chapter 16 ends with a closing summary of the chapter's events. Hagar, indeed, after returning to Abram and Sarai, she bears a son to Abram. 
Abram named the son what Hagar must have told Abram that the angel said to name the boy. He's named Ishmael. And all this happens, verse 16 says, when Abram is 86 years old, 11 years now after first having received the promises from God recorded in Genesis 12. Now, what does all this have to do with you? Well, we're going to say even more about this when we get to Genesis 21, Lord willing. But the Apostle Paul interprets Hagar and Ishmael for us in Galatians chapter 4. Those are the verses that our sister Kate read for us earlier. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says that Hagar is metaphorically the mother of all who would seek to be justified, all who would seek to be made right with God by their works. In the context of the book of Galatians, that's those who would seek to be made right with God, both by faith in Jesus Christ and by working to keep the law that God gives to Moses, beginning in the book of Exodus. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Hagar is the mother of those who are under the law. She's the mother of those who are slaves to sin and slaves to the law. Sarah, on the other hand, as we're going to see in Genesis 21, when Sarah finally does bear the promised son of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Paul says in Galatians 4, is the mother of the children of promise, the mother of those who are free, the mother of those who, by faith alone, in Christ alone, are made right with God. I want you to hold on to all that because we're going to come back to that in a few weeks. But as I said earlier, what the angel of the Lord prophesies regarding Ishmael opposing his kinsmen is seen in places like Psalm 83. This lapse in faith, this faltering faith of Abram and Sarai has monumental consequences. In Psalm 83, we read this, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, listen, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and the Hagrites. Those who descend from Hagar. Do you hear? Do you hear what groups like the Ishmaelites and the Hagrites or the Hagrites say? They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Those who descend from Hagar and Ishmael. They oppose those who descend from Abram. Hagar's seed opposes Abraham's seed. Hagar's seed, Ishmael, is serpent's seed, as are those who descend from him. They're cursed because they dishonor Abram and those who descend from Abram, just like God promised would be the case back in Genesis chapter 12. That's why this DIY project from Abram and Sarai is so foolish. It was sinful. It was the fruit of the episode of faltering faith. And because Ishmael came from Abraham, the Lord blessed him, made of him a great nation, which meant a great multitude of people would descend from Ishmael, but they would be a great multitude of those who would hate those who descend from the true promised son of Abram, Isaac. 
And if you believe that the Arabs descend from Ishmael, the October 7th attack on Israel begins to make sense. What a mess. And so just when you're about to get pretty enamored with old Abram, you see him receiving magnificent promises from God. You see him believing these promises. You see him victoriously defending and rescuing his kinsman Lot from the armies of multiple kings back in Genesis chapter 14. Just when you start to think Abram's the one to get pretty excited about, Genesis 16 is like a cold splash of water to the face. Now, this isn't the last word on Abram, thankfully. He turns out, by God's grace, to be a man characterized by faith in God's saving promises to his people. But Abram's imperfections reveal he's not going to be the one to crush the serpent's head, as God promised in Genesis 3.15. That's why, brothers and sisters, it is such good news that there is one whose faith in God never wavered, never faltered, not even once. There is one who sinlessly always obeyed the Father's commands and trusted in the Father to bring about his saving promises in his time, even when it meant waiting, even when it meant suffering. That one, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike Abram and Sarai, unlike you and me, Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands. He was tempted to. At least three times that the New Testament records, one time when Satan tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, one time when Satan tempts Jesus to worship Satan so as to receive all the authority and glory of the kingdoms of this world, one time when Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple to show that God would send angels to keep Jesus from harm. And each of those temptations was Satan's attempt to get Jesus to try and receive glory and power and a bride and his kingdom without going to the cross, and Jesus would have none of it. Jesus knew that the path to saving his bride, the path to being enthroned at his father's right hand, was suffering and death. And so, Jesus patiently obeyed his father. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus trusted that God would accomplish his perfect plan. Jesus trusted that God's perfect saving promises would come to pass, even though Jesus knew what that meant for him. Jesus knew that meant that he would suffer. He knew that meant that he would suffer the humiliation of being born as a Jew to the Jews and being rejected by them almost entirely. He knew that he would be schemed against and lied about and misunderstood and rejected. He knew that meant that he would go without creature comforts, including even a place to lay his head. He knew he'd be betrayed by one of his closest followers, that he'd be abandoned by all of his closest followers, that he'd be denied by one of those in his innermost circle. He knew that that meant he'd be found guilty on bogus charges in a kangaroo court and that he would die a bloody death on a Roman cross. 
He knew that as he hung on the cross, his father was going to pour out on him all of his wrath for all the sins of all his people. Jesus knew that. The spotless lamb of God knew that he would have his people's sins accounted to him and that he would have to be the sacrifice, the the burnt offering that erased all of his people's sin debt toward God. He knew all that lay between him and God's saving promises coming to pass. But Jesus didn't deviate to the right or to the left, did he? He set his face to go to the cross. And even while on the cross, enduring its shame, he looked to the joy that was set before him. His resurrection, his enthronement, his bride, the church. Abram's faith wavered. But the faith of Abram's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, never wavered. And because Jesus' faith never wavered, that's why Abram and Sarai are in heaven with Jesus right now awaiting their resurrection. Because what made their faith saving faith was not because it was perfect, but because by God's grace, their faith was in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone and his faith and his obedience were perfect. So how is it that Genesis 16 affects your Monday? How do we apply this text to our lives? Well, first I want to say to you who are outside of Christ that you're like Ishmael in this text. You dwell over against all God's people. If you are not a Christian, you are right now, according to the scriptures, an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. Now, you might think that you're occupying just some philosophical, neutral ground because you haven't yet decided what you're going to do with Jesus. Or because you're not a Christian, but you're nice to everybody, including for some of you, the Christian you're married to. But I want to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. From the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever is not with me is against me. There is no neutral territory. If you are not for Jesus by faith, you are against him. And if you are against him, you are by necessity against all who are in him, his people, Christians. You're Ishmael. And Ishmael belongs to the seed of the serpent. The serpent's head was crushed in the death and resurrection of Christ. And at the last day, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire, the lake with fire that burns eternally. And that's the same place, my unbelieving friends, that the Bible says that those who die without faith in Christ will spend eternity too. It's going to be an eternity of conscious Agony and torment and eternity. And the punishment will fit the crime. It will fit the crime of your stubborn unbelief and unrepentance. But I wonder if you can listen to me when I tell you that I've come to you today with wonderful news. You don't have to remain in Ishmael's cursed line. We're all born into it, as it turns out. 
We're all born sinners. We're all born enemies of God. All of us begin life as serpent seed, but you don't have to remain in your sin. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and he'll save you. He'll save you. He'll forgive your sin. Isn't that unbelievable? He'll adopt you into his family. He'll give you eternal life. He'll allow you to begin now living with the hope of being raised from the dead at his return when you'll live with him and all of his people in paradise forever. God the Father will be to you now your good and loving heavenly Father. And you'll be to him a beloved son or daughter. How is it that you come into God's family? How is it that you become a Christian? Well, God has to save you. So let me ask you who are outside of Christ to pray and ask God to save you. You can do that right now, right where you're sitting. You can pray and ask God to give you the grace to repent from your sins and to give you faith, saving faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And my brothers and sisters, how can we apply this text? Well, as I said earlier, you face Abram and Sarai's temptation to take matters into your own hands where the Lord's saving promises to you are concerned all the time. In fact, I think many times, maybe every time, you can trace a straight line from your sin to a faltering faith in God's salvation promises in Christ to you. Let me tease that out a little bit. Your sin of self-promotion, your sin of pride, your sin of being easily offended, your sin of being defensive, your sin of feeling justified for unforgiveness, justified for holding a grudge, I think those can all be tied back to not trusting that the Lord is going to glorify you at the last day in Christ. Not trusting that he will vindicate you. Not trusting that he right now is for you and not against you. Not deriving your comfort from the truth that God, if God is for you, it doesn't matter who's for you or against you. I think you can draw a straight line from that to not believing that it's enough that your name is written in heaven. Brothers and sisters, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't seek to make a name for yourself or to try to justify yourself or always worried about your reputation or always coming to your own defense. Trust that all the glory and all the defense and all the vindication you long for is going to be yours at Christ's return. It will mean waiting for it. But don't take matters into your own hands. Trust in the Lord. For some of you, it's the sin of self-pleasure in whatever form that takes. It can be obsession with hobbies, tuning out from your roommates or your spouse or your children or your friends or from the church for the sake of an abundance of me time. Self-pleasure obviously can take the form of lust, obsession with food and drink, obsession with spending, obsession with saving. 
and looking to all those things to bring you pleasure as an end to themselves reveals that you're faltering in believing God's saving promises that the Lord Jesus can and will satisfy you with his love and with his salvation, that he's going to satisfy you completely with it the last day when you'll say with the psalmist, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are there pleasures forevermore. Pleasing yourself with something that you're not receiving or taking part in to the glory of God is taking matters into your own hands and not waiting on the Lord or trusting in him to bring you joy through salvation in Christ. And that, and it's full at the last day. It's taking matters into your own hands. Some of you are tempted perhaps to take matters into your own hands by dating who you shouldn't. Instead of trusting in the Lord to bring you a spouse or children in his time, if it is his will, that can show a faltering faith. It can show not believing the saving promise that he is generous and not withholding. It can show a faltering faith and not believing the saving promise that he does only good to his children and not harm. Now, does this mean you shouldn't make an effort to have a spouse or a child? No. But I'm saying you shouldn't see those things as the missing piece in your contentment puzzle. Christ, brothers and sisters, is your lasting, deepest contentment. And these other things that bring us joy bring us joy best when we receive them as gifts from him to his glory. And they fuel our praise and worship back to him. For some of you, it's the sin of discontentment and apathy. It's possible to be sinfully anxious. That's a complicated issue. If you want me to explain it more, I'm happy to do that. Don't go to an unhelpful place with that. But there can be a sinful lack of peace, a sinful lack of joy. That's all the fruit of faltering in God's saving promises to you. I'm saying to you, brother and sister, that God's saving promises to you in the scriptures of defense and glory and vindication and joy and peace and pleasure and all the rest. All of those things pertain to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all the things that are guaranteed to you in the scriptures. And I'm calling on you to learn from Saul and Abram and Sarai and wait for them and put your hope in them and not to try and find joy and satisfaction in cheap substitutes now. Wait until all those things find their fulfillment at Christ's Return as the Lord Jesus waited at Christ's return when our heavenly bridegroom is going to call us. He's going to call out our name so that we rise from the dead, imperishable and immortal, and we'll dwell with him and we'll dwell with his people eternally. We'll get to embrace him. We'll see the one whom our soul loves. Don't take matters into your own hands, believer. Trust in the Lord. Wait for him. Trust in his saving promises to you. He will only ever do you good and not harm forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.
Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect faithfulness on our behalf. Give us faith to hold to him fast now and to the end. We pray in his name. Amen.